They say girls shouldn't go to school. And by they, we mean, in the case of our first story, Boko Haram. I'm Kelsey Timmerman. And I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, we'll explore new beginnings. Hey everybody, welcome to Season 2 of The Facing Project radio show. Kelsey, can you believe we've made it to Season 2? We, hey, we didn't get cancelled. That's know. true. We were invited back. We'd like to thank our listener, JR's mom. Bernie. Thanks, Bernie. Thanks for always listening. And sometimes our listener, Lynn. Yeah, Lynn my, my Timmerman. <laughs> no, seriously, though, we, we do have more than two listeners, and we thank our listeners for tuning in each month uh, for the program. You know, we, lo- we do this because of the stories that we like to share and how it impacts all of you, and we've had a lot of great feedback on season one, so we're really excited to be back for another season. But with a new season, we want to change things up a little bit, and we actually want to go deeper. So rather than just sharing a couple of stories that are recorded by voice actors and some commentary from us, we want to add more context to better inform you on the issues that are rooted in our stories. And our ultimate goal is to get you interested in the topics by introducing you to people who have faced them. And that ultimately is the power of stories. Yeah, and really one of our weaknesses as a species is that we have to hear a story or we have to have a personal experience before we can care, right? And there's actually a term for this. It's called psychic numbing. Like when we hear these overwhelming statistics, tens of thousands of this, millions of that, we can just kind of shut down, right? Um, So uh, Annie Dillard, the author, actually has a really good example of kind of trying to process what psychic numbing Hmm. means. So here's, here's our quote. There are 1,198,500,000 people alive now in China. To get a feel for what this means, simply take yourself and all your singularity, importance, complexity, and love and multiply by 1,198,500,000. See? Wow. Nothing to it. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I mean, I'm not good at math, so that makes things like really complicated for me. You know, so what we're trying to do this year is kind of pan out from that single story because Mm -hmm. no single story can capture the mosaic of lived experiences around a particular topic. Um, So we're hoping to pan out to provide that larger context so that it will hopefully move you to interact with these topics more, but then also you'll be better informed to do so. Yeah. So today's story comes from the Facing Project at Mott Community College in Flint, Michigan. The storyteller, Serena, shared her journey to escape Boko Haram. It was told to Riley Fritch and performed by Sasha Donetti. They say girls are not supposed to go to school. They say that girls should get married around 14 or 15 years of age so they can cook for the men and give them children. Terrorism and bombing from Boko Haram has been embedded in my life for as long as I can remember. It makes me feel unsafe, but it has become normal to me. It is a part of life for all of us in Nigeria. Boko Haram are bad people. They get mad when they see girls going to school. But I like school. So, Serena was supposed to go to the gifted school because of how well she did on placement tests. But it was close to where the Chibu girls were kidnapped, so her parents decided to pull her out of school altogether. Boko Haram, loosely translated, means Western education is banned. The group has inhabited northern Nigeria for the past decade and promotes a version of Islam that forbids Muslims from taking part in any Western activity, whether it's political or social. 
The terror group says its aim is to impose a stricter enforcement of Sharia law across Nigeria. In its efforts to do so, have indiscriminately killed tens of thousands of both Christians and Muslims and displaced more than two million people. Today, they kidnapped 300 girls from the school in Chibak. I heard that they're holding them hostage in some woods. I do not know what woods. I wonder what woods. In April 2014, the Boko Haram kidnapped 276 girls from the government secondary school in the town of Chibuk, not far from Serena's home. This kidnapping led to a cry for help through social media and ultimately the trending hashtag, Bring Back Our Girls. Over the first few months, 57 girls were able to escape and shared that the other girls were still alive. According to a report from the BBC, the Boko Haram's goal was to use the girls as negotiation pawns in return for the release of some of their jailed commanders. Soon they will start using them as suicide bombers. I already know this because recently they placed a young girl in the middle of the market with a bomb strapped to her. I know the girl from the market escaped and she was lucky, but those 300 girls I will be praying for. Today, I finally understood the reason as to why my parents have been trying to get their visa since they got married. They told me at a very young age that it would take four to five years to get our visas. I really do not want to wait any longer, but you must have a reason to go to the United States. Like Boko Haram isn't a good enough reason? But hundreds of thousands of people have fled Nigeria because of that same reason. And you must have enough money to sustain life for the length of time that you will be abroad. They will actually check your bank account to see if you have all the money. Serena's family has been in the process for years. And then the day came for the interview. We spent all morning probably ironing our clothes, cleaning our shoes. My sister and I even got our hair done for the first time in a salon. Every 30 minutes, my dad would ask us about what we were supposed to say, when or if we were asked certain questions. We waited for at least an hour before we could get interviews because the line was very long. A lot of people was trying to leave the country due to the insurgency. I'm sure the immigration process isn't easy. Yeah, so I drew the short straw on this one and started to look into what it takes to actually immigrate from like Nigeria, right, to make it to our country. And it's overwhelming and claustrophobic at the same time. And so it's a process where you're just basically losing yourself in the world of forms. There's this form I-797, I-864, I-864W, and EZ, form DS-260. Wow. And you have to file a petition, and the petition is either filed by, like, a relative back in the States or an employer in the States, and it must be mailed to a lockbox in Chicago. Wow. There's, like, no place you can go in Nigeria to actually, like, talk to someone about this or to, to hand it hand it to them. Yikes. And there's application fees, uh, $220 fee. Um, then you have to show proof of income. You have to earn like $32,000 a year. I think that there are other fees involved. Uh, there's all sorts of documentation of how much money you have, of where you were born, of where you live. Um, you have to have a medical examination that's at, done at a place that's uh, embassy approved. Um, and you have to have all your vaccinations. And then there's more fees and more documents. It's it's a lot. Wow. So it really isn't as easy as we sometimes just think. It could be just, oh, I'm going to go get a visa or they're going to go get a visa. 
to come to the U.S. It's not that simple. To me, it's like doing all sorts of work, probably months or years of work to try to win the lottery. That's kind of what's happening here. I have the most wonderful news. We have our visas. I was so nervous earlier today. I cannot believe the white lady only asked us two questions and did not look at a single document that my dad presented. All she had to say was, ma'am, you have been accepted and your visa for your whole family will be ready in a week's time. I tried to keep calm when we was in the building. But once we stepped out, I burst with joy, screaming. And the first person my parents told was my grandparents, and they were delighted. Then your dreams are realized, and you get on a flight to the United States, and then there's the food. My first impression of America has been unfortunate. I got sick for something I ate in the plane. The food tastes foreign to me. I don't like it, and it smells horrible. I went to the flight attendant because I was sick, and she gave me ginger ale. I looked at my mom and said, Mom, they gave me soda. All she said was, drink it up. There's nothing else we can do. I found it quite comical that they gave me ginger ale. The flight took two days. We stopped in Dubai and then Chicago. Now we're in Michigan. When we stepped out of the airport, it was super cold. The coats we bought from Nigeria was not thick enough to protect us. At 5 a.m., we took an Uber to a hotel. We went right to sleep. When I woke up, it was around 9 a.m., and I noticed it was snowing. I shouted with delight. Mom, look, it's snowing outside. I didn't know it was going to be so cold, but I immediately ran outside with bare feet. A man was standing outside, and he looked at me like I was a crazy person for going outside in the snow without shoes on. After fleeing Boko Haram and going through everything her family went through to keep Serena safe and to ensure she had access to an education, they ended up in Flint, Michigan in winter. And Michigan winters are not easy. We're talking sub-zero temperatures and feet of snow. But in a positive turn of events, Serena was able to get into the Genesee Early College, which is a higher secondary school in Flint, Michigan. It's designed to prepare high school students for careers and advanced study in the medical and health-related professions. But she was considered their first ever international student, and they weren't really sure what to do with her or how to categorize her. So she wasn't allowed to receive college credits like her U.S.-born peers. Serena was upset at first, but was happy to be back in school, and at a school that was free, something that was unheard of in Nigeria. All of the good non-government school in Nigeria are private or a gifted school that you have to pay for. Here, my parents don't have to pay for it. We have to pay for everything in Nigeria. We also have to fetch water to drink. We don't have to do that here. I almost feel spoiled. In a strange coincidence, in the same month Boko Haram kidnapped the girls, Flint changed their water supply from Lake Huron to the Flint River, leading to lead contamination and undrinkable water throughout the city. Six to 12,000 children were exposed, and it is believed that this contamination caused an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease and the deaths of 12 people. The most wonderful opportunity in this new life is being able to go to school with other girls and not worrying about anyone telling us we're not allowed to. Boko Haram say girls are not supposed to go to school. They get mad when they see girls going to school. But I like to go to school.
We caught up with Serena. She recently received a degree from Mott Community College and now lives in Houston, Texas, where she studies pre-med. As of April 2019, 112 girls from the Chibuck Secondary School are still missing. And the residents of Flint still don't trust the water. Serena is joining us by phone. Welcome to the show, Serena. Thank you. Thanks so much for sharing your story with, uh, with the Mott Project. So what was that experience like for you sharing your story at your school in Michigan? It was eye-opening. It was the first time I had that opportunity to share my story for others to be motivated or learn a lesson from it. And it also benefited me because I felt that this wasn't something I should talk about, but here I was really talking about my desire for better education. So it was quite opening and it was interesting and I really enjoyed myself. Were you surprised or did anything become apparent about how people reacted to your story when you shared it? I was. I didn't expect them to be so surprised that girl education was an issue. I guess because that isn't really a problem here. When I talked about how girls are limited from going to school, they're kidnapped, they're killed just for seeking out education, I realized this is something that is um, quite a big issue. So that's why I started writing poems, encouraging girls here that I see who who feel that education is not really that important. I wrote poems who tell them education is important and treasure it. So, yeah. I was a little surprised that they they thought of it that way. In your story, you shared mainly about your journey of coming to the U.S. and the importance of education in your life. Can you tell our listeners what a day of school was like in Abuja? Um, So it's uh, you wake up in the morning, there's no bus to pick you up, catch the tricycle, which we call the Kekena Pep. You get to school, there's a hassle everywhere for seats, if you try and get there early, you might get a seat with someone. And then through the whole day, there's that hassle for going to classes. Teachers are going on strike. No teachers in classes. Students just sitting around doing nothing. But still, you see students coming every day because they they want that education, even though it's as little as possible. They, they want it. And that was what it was like for me, just... And that's what created that desire, that love for education, not having enough once and more. So that's what like, school was almost every day. Why were the teachers going on strike? Um, teachers are not being paid enough. And due to lack of pay, they affected their families also. And so training, there was lack of proper training, unqualified teachers. So, yeah, teachers were on strike, and it was, yes, it was an issue over there. When the students would show up each day still while the teachers were on strike, what did you do, typically? Oh, (laughs) well, we went to class, and we noticed teachers not coming today. They're on strike again. We would read on our own, and we had blackboards where we used chalk. So we had some certain students who were smarter than the others, so they'll get up on the chalkboard and start teaching math um, problems that they know most of the students are having issues with. Um, we borrow notes to copy. We borrow textbooks and just sit down and read together. It was more of like a community thing, walking together, just to help ourselves, knowing that our teacher will not be there. Wow. How many students were in a class, and what was the ratio of uh, girls and boys in a typical class? Uh, let's see. 
university. It was a class of 50 students in one class, mostly girls. Mm -hmm. So um, your school plans, you were planning on going to school, to a new school, and that those plans were kind of changed because of Boko Haram. Um, did you fear that you would not be able to continue your education unless you made it out of the country to come to the United States? Yes. Um, I feared that I would. The thought of coming to the United States was like a dream or a miracle to me and my family. So when we, we got out of this, it was, it was a miracle. We're quite surprised. Because back home, Boko Haram were terrorizing students. I I wasn't, my parents said, no, you can't go there, even though you promoted it, because there's so much danger there for you as a girl, saying that you want to pursue education and make a better life for yourself. How long did you have to sit out of school? Uh, it was a couple of months. I would say four or five months. When you got to the U.S., finally, you talked about in your story stepping off the plane in cold Flint, Michigan. That was probably quite the change from Nigeria. Mm, yeah. At the same time, Flint was experiencing a water crisis. Mm. Was the United States you stepped into different from what you had imagined it would be? Yes, it was different from what I, I imagined back in Nigeria where corruption is rooted in the system. Well, here, there's there's lots of opportunities for people. The government and other organizations, they, they help provide, even during the water crisis, there are being water bottles provided. Back at home, <laughs> none of that would have been available. You have water issues back at home, and no one really cares. The government does nothing about it. So it was, it was quite a change, both in aspects of the economical differences, the social differences, the educational differences. But I tried to adapt to it because you have to learn to adapt to the situation. But I, I enjoyed it so far. I do. Yeah, I'm sure that's a, a quite a journey and quite a big change going from Abuja to Flint uh, to now you're in Houston studying pre-med. Um, so what is a day of school like for you now? That's true. So it's, it's very different from, from back at home. Back in Nigeria, we we taught skills, taught to read books, understand equations, formulas, um, laws. Here it's more practical. You're taught if you're in a real life situation, what will you do? And so in school, a typical day, um, I go to school, I take three, two or three classes. And then after my classes, I go to the students, uh, college students in math, biology, in other areas they might have issues in. And I realized that some students, they complain about most classes. They say, oh, it's difficult, this and that. I look at those problems and I say, it's quite easy because from back at home in Nigeria, this is something we're taught. You know, with education being something students are looking for, there is no gateway or a freeway to complain that this is easy or, or this is sorry, this is hard or difficult to deal with. So I, I, I look at students and I, I say, what what if they realize how hard it is back in Nigeria or the places in the world even have the 
opportunities the, for free education, I should say, as they do. And so that's why I, I try to talk with them, tell them my experiences. Why why don't you value education? And when I see girls especially, I try to encourage them to keep on pursuing education because it's quite important. Is it frustrating to see some students in the United States not appreciating the opportunity of their education? Yes, it, it, it is quite frustrating, but I understand where they're also coming from. This is, for them, it's normal. They have not experienced the other life that I had of wanting more, of lacking so much that you wish you had more of it. So I just try my best to be a role model for them, but sometimes it doesn't always work. But I've also met students who said, I love your enthusiasm for education. You know, keep it up and, and keep doing that. Um, you're real motivation for me. And it makes me happy when they do that. And you're studying pre-med. Uh, what kind of medicine do you hope to go into? So right now, I'm trying to um, major in biology, minor in chemistry, and still do a pre-nursing pathway so I can maybe get a nursing degree their job as a nurse and still go to medical school because life out there is quite tough and you have to have planned options as much as possible in case situation changes. When you were a schoolgirl in Abuja, did you dream that one day you would be in pre-med? <laughs> that's, that's a tough question. Um, I would say... The dream wasn't as burning as it is right now, where I see I really have that opportunity. Back in Nigeria, I thought, well, I want to be a doctor, but if it doesn't work out, I'll think of something else to do. So, But here, it's, it's very stronger, and I'm, I'm more motivated to pursue that passion than back at home. Do you still have family and friends back home in Nigeria? Yes. Do you talk to them? Um, no, no, it's it's quite difficult. Not, I mean, I try to Facebook. They're six hours ahead of us, and we talk to family members that either asleep or am asleep. So it's a problem. It's it's quite tough. And I lost my grandfather recently. And it was it was quite disheartening that we were not there during his final day. Uh, friends, I try to keep in touch, but it's it's, it's not as I thought it is. Yeah, Serena, do you think that you'll ever go back to Nigeria to encourage other girls to continue their education, or what ways do you see yourself being involved in that process? Definitely in the future. I really want to go back home because the girls like me back at home too. I was always fortunate to get this opportunity. So I feel like I owe them, owe them that opportunity to, to also let them have that chance. So yes, I will definitely go home, talk to them and keep on encouraging them to stick to their education. Yeah, that's great. Um, right now in the United States, there is, um, and there has been for some time a big com a conversation about immigration and who should come into uh, the United States. And so when you're hearing this conversation, which gets pretty ugly and pretty volatile at times, 
what are your thoughts and how does that make you feel? I feel sad, you know. I mean, I, you, you can't change the laws of what a country has. If it's what is being put in place, then it's just sad that you still have to experience it. Did you feel like when you came to the United States, you faced discrimination? Yes, yes. Discrimination in different ways. Actions, the way you dress, um, the way you spoke to people, the, the way I thought about things, the things I considered important. Yes, there was discrimination, even from African Americans. Um, but I, I understood why that was. And I learned to unique one, the ugly duckling in the room. I, I took it as part of adapting to a new foreign environment. Serena, thank you so much for joining us on The Facing Project and taking the time to talk to us about your experiences as someone who has come to the U.S. from Nigeria, escaping the Boko Haram, and you've made it all the way to med school. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for sharing your story, Serena. I'll talk to you later. Aside from her studies in Houston, Serena shared with us that she likes to write poetry on the side, and she shared one of those poems with us. I want to read an excerpt from Onanife, Strong Girl That Resides Within. Education is supposed to be a right, but from my nation, my origin, It is a privilege thanks to corruption, thanks to insurgency, and thanks to poverty. Young girls are rejected for seeking out knowledge. They are turned into unwilling suicide bombers. They are turned into baby factories. They are left disoriented for what? For mentioning the word education? Girls. Chibuk girls kidnapped in hundreds. Bring back our girls, parents plead. Bring back our girls, parents plead. Young, brilliant girls aren't treated like the pearls that they truly are. They aren't treated like the leaders of tomorrow. Readers are leaders. Young girls are readers, aren't they? They should be leaders, shouldn't they? Women say that their obligation, their responsibility is to be housewives. Dumb mothers, they call them. But I refuse to be called dumb. I refuse to be called stupid or irrelevant because I matter. When my parents ask me what I want in the future, what I want out of education that demands their dimes, pennies, and sweats from their labor, I say I want to be a motivator, feeding frail minds, saving lost hopes, because I am someone who embraces change. With my family, I traveled thousands of kilometers, miles, however you want to measure it. We traveled all the way from Nigeria to the United States. Embarked on this journey, not for money or a jar of honey, but for education. With the power of education, the door of opportunity has been opened up to me. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others with The Facing Project that may appear on the show through our Stories That Inspire Action initiative. 
More information at facingproject.com slash inspireaction. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. It's produced by Sean Ashcraft. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. And until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Thank you.